Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to episode 522 of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have a fun new interview with a little agricultural-inspired fiction where the power of plants' fragrance is steeped in mystery and danger. We're talking with Karen Hugh about The Forgetting Flower. Karen is the author of The Forgetting Flower, a literary thriller about dangerous plants in Paris. Most of Karen's stories are set in worlds where plants, real or imagined, affect people in strange new ways. Born and raised in Chicago, she later moved to Seattle and worked as an editor before becoming a certified ornamental horticulturist and master pruner. She earned her MFA from Goddard College and has been published in the Rooted Anthology, Minerva Rising, Garden Rant, and many other publications. When not writing, she digs in the dirt. When not digging in the dirt, she hangs out with her husband, three children, and four pets. When not doing any of those things, she sits outside and stares at the sky. Welcome to the show today, Karen. Are you ready to rock? I am, Greg. Let's go. Excellent. So, hey, I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Sure. Well, a long time ago, I worked as an editor, but I was always had one hand in writing. And I was working at the time in high-tech places like Microsoft and Amazon. And as you can imagine, those are very high-stress a long hour kind of jobs. And uh, after about maybe five years or seven years or so, I kind of burnt out on the tech life. And I kind of had to re-examine really what I wanted to do. And I had always taken solace in plants and gardening and already was a sort of an armchair gardener. So I decided to give horticulture school a try and see if I liked it. And the more I learned about plants, the more I fell in love with plants. And so they kind of became my passion. And I ended up opening my own little gardening business. 
a one-woman show with a truck, and I designed and maintained people's yards for a good 15 or so years. Wow. But I'm in Seattle, so you can imagine that it rains all winter, which it does, and so gardening season is slow in winter. So I started writing fiction again, and it was a few years before I finally realized that plants – You know, I wanted to take the passion I had for plants and somehow incorporate them into my writing, but plants are so relaxing and soothing that I never really thought they were a valid subject matter. Once I started incorporating them into my fiction, I realized I had all of these different ideas about how to, just all these different ideas for stories that were thrilling and compelling and dangerous that featured plants. So I ended up coming up with the idea for the forgetting flower and it's kind of where I'm at today. So let's, before we get into your writing, I want to talk about your bio. You said you, you became a certified ornamental horticulturist and master pruner. Tell me about that. I've not heard that before. The master pruner part or the certified ornamental horticulture? Well, part? I, I can imagine the first part. I just never knew there was a master pruner, but let's touch on both pruner. of them. Sure. Well, when I went to horticulture school, I the end of my program, it was a, a two-year program. And at the end of the two-year program, you become certified by taking various tests and whatnot. And so that's where my certification came from, was basically horticulture school, which And, you know, I'm certified as an ornamental horticulturalist, which is really a fancy way of saying garden designer. (laughs) So that's kind of where that term came from. And then master pruner is really a term that is unique to Seattle because we have a nonprofit uh, organization called Plant Amnesty in Seattle, which is basically an advocacy group for trees and shrubs and the pruning of trees and shrubs. And so they have a program that's a six-month program where you, you know, take classes and you do your final exams and whatnot. And at the end, you become what is called a master pruner. So it's really a title similar to master gardener, but it just basically says I'm qualified to prune your trees and shrubs. So. Wow. All right. Cool. We We need you here, actually. One of my biggest challenges, because I do pruning, and one of my biggest challenges is that there are thousands of people here in Phoenix that need fruit trees pruned, and I can't do them all. Yeah. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah, you know, I love the way the desert, the Sonoran Desert in general, like Tucson and Phoenix smell in March Mm. when all those citrus trees are blooming. Mm -hmm. It smells wonderful. Oh, that it does. So you're on a mission to make people fall in love with plants. What does that mean and what does it entail? (laughs) Well, Here's the thing, you know, I, I really, my, my passion is plants and the green world, nature and the environment. And I sort of feel like there, you know, we have a lot of bad news coming out about climate change mm-hmm. and we need to get in touch with the importance of nature. And so without being preachy or writing gloom and doom fiction, I thought it might be more fun if I could bring the sort of the alluring nature of plants to life, the sort of magnetic qualities of them to life and draw people in through exciting stories that featured plants. Because maybe if they enjoy those stories, then maybe they'll get more interested in plants. Maybe they'll grow some plants, even house plants. And maybe if they're more interested in plants, they'll get more interested in nature and the environment and then hence be feel more connected to Mm. our environment 
And so that's kind of that's kind of what that means. Is I just believe in making plants the most, you know, as exciting and, and and as beautiful and interesting as I see them in my, you know, gardening life. Yeah. Well, in the Forgetting Flower, this is the first book of a trilogy, right? Yes. Botanique Noir. So tell me a little bit about the trilogy before we dive into the first book. Right. So the trilogy is three books, all set in Paris, that feature a botanically, a botanic anomaly. So the first book is about a plant, a flower that can make you forget a memory. The second book is about a white apple uh, that's medicinal that can boost your immune system and have healing powers. And the third is about nuts that come off the rootlets of trees that can enhance possibly fertility. So there are all of these speculative plants that, you know, I started thinking about what would, what plants don't exist, but would be cool if they did. Right. (laughs) And so these are the plants that I came up with and the stories just sort of flowed outward from there. So where on earth did you come up with this idea at? Well, (laughs) you know, as you probably know, when you're gardening, you have a lot of time to think. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so, you know, one one of the things I did as a, you know, as a gar- as a professional gardener was I often consulted clients about fragrant plants. And so I would tell them, well, plant this for sort of a spicy scent, plant this for a woody scent, this for a sweet scent, you know, or a peanut butter scent, you know, there's all kinds of, you know, citrus scents, of course. And so I started thinking about what would happen if a plant existed that had a dangerous scent. So not really a a foul scent, you know, like the corpse plant or something, but a dangerous scent that, that would be maybe, you know, dangerous to actually inhale. And so once I started thinking about that, I started thinking about, well, where would that exist? Would it be a a created plant? Like, would it be hybridized? Mm -hmm. Or would it be just, uh, you know, a sport of another plant? Or would it occur, you know, as a natural variation in nature? And so as I started asking myself those questions, I started answering them with the most logical sort of answer I, you know, could come up with. And that just sort of led me to think about a woman who might have the plant and where she would keep it. And she would have to keep it, obviously, in someplace secure. And so in the book, she keeps it in a nook, a secret nook in the back of her plant shop. But the problem is, in the beginning of the book, someone has gotten into that nook and used the plant. And now that person is dead. Oh, interesting. So, yes. And and you used a hybrid of the African violet. And a, yes. Oh, oh, so a hybrid of the African violet and a mystery plant. Why the African violet? Well, I have a, I had, I guess you could say, or have a mild obsession with African violets. And so I would collect them and collect, um, you know, variegated ones and different colors and whatnot. And I noticed in my older African violets, you know, the way they grow, uh, because they're, they're really not woody plants, they, they grow in this sort of zigzaggy way that looks really kind of neat. And I started thinking about, well, what would happen if an African violet was crossed with a woody plant? And what if it actually did grow up into a shrub? What would that look like? And how would it reproduce? You know, because African violets mostly are asexual. And so they, you know, just throw off pups. And but what if it what if it had a scent that would, you know, where it wanted to attract a pollinator? And so as I started thinking about that, I created what was what I call in the book, the violet smoke, which is the plant that the main character takes mm-hmm. care of. So 
Did I just hear you say that the main character is this plant of the book? Well, the, no, the main character takes care of. So the, uh, the main character's name is Renya, and she is a uh, plant shop uh, manager. And she has inherited this plant from her sister. And she's not, at the beginning of the book, she's not speaking to her sister, and, and you don't know why. Uh, but it might have to do with the plant. Interesting. And you chose Paris rather than a small town because... Oh, well, I, you know, when I was, when I was in high tech life, I actually worked in Paris for about a summer and then some, and I fell in love with that city. I mean, I had always sort of loved Paris, but Mm -hmm. when I actually got a chance to live and work there, it became just a regular city to me. And I still loved it despite all its flaws. So Paris to me is sort of like a fun place to dream and, you know, to, to go back and visit it. And, and just, I love French culture and French people. Nice. Well, it is definitely a cool city. That is for sure. Yeah. In looking online, you've written several books. First of all, you have, this was the first one of a trilogy that's coming out, but you have a couple other books. Tell me about them. Well, I have another book and it's actually what I call my my bargain book, because it is not part of this trilogy, but it is about a tree. It's called Song of the Tree Hollow. And it's about a young woman who comes home to help her mom care for their sick cat while her mom is in rehab. And the cat dies and actually is revived by the vet. But after the cat's revived by the vet, it keeps running down into the backyard ravine and wants to go to this one tree. And this the uh, young woman who takes care of her cat, um, her her name is Vero, she realizes that when she touch, touches the tree, she hears a hum from the tree, and she can't figure out why. And so the mystery of the book is why is the tree humming? What What is it trying to tell mm, her? Uh, hence, Song of the Hollow Tree. Yes, exactly. Wow. And then the, the mystery of the, of the book, the story of the book is basically a, a, an uncovering of, of the secrets of her family and what has happened on that, at that house and on that property. Interesting. You really have gotten into writing about horticulture. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. I try. Yeah, that's cool. And then the, uh, the third book that's available I see online is? The third book, oh, Harvesting the Sky. Uh, that is a follow-up. Uh, that's actually forthcoming, so it's not out yet. Ah. But that is the second book in the Botanique Noir, Noir trilogy, and that focuses on a botanist named Andre who appears in The Forgetting Flower, and it's about his story of going to Kazakhstan where, uh, you may know, the, the first apple trees, scientists think that the first apple trees developed in Kazakhstan. And there are huge forests of apple trees everywhere in Kazakhstan, and so there's many, many different varieties. So among all of these varieties, he finds this white medicinal apple that can really boost the immune system. And so it's about him bringing a sapling back and grafting other trees and trying to grow the the medicinal apple trees but a mysterious stranger keeps vandalizing his greenhouse and he can't figure out why oh interesting you have fun with this don't you (laughs) yeah it is kind of fun oh cool in all of this you've become a gardener tell me about your garden space well i am blessed because 
about, let's see now, maybe nine, no, eight years ago, my husband and I moved out of the city of Seattle to a suburb just north of Seattle. And we bought a old house on a long kind of narrow property. So I have, I garden on 1.3 acres. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's really cool. But the thing is, the what's even cooler actually, is the front is a clump of woods, and then the far back is a ravine and a clump of woods. Ooh. So I don't have to take care of 1.3 acres. Right. <laughs> So the main sort of space in between those two clumps of woods are the house and a long backyard that's cultivated. So in that cultivated space, I have sort of a long island bed that is what I call my butterfly bee uh, and bird garden because I have a lot of plants to attract those, you know, those birds and insects and whatnot. And then I have a shady sort of oak garden that has drier conditions. And then I have some sort of woodland border gardens on the edges of the forest parts of the property. And I grow a lot of shade plants there, a lot of part shade plants, hydrangeas, heucheras, you know, stuff like that. So but, you know, as you probably know, gardening is a constant – one's garden is a constant work in progress. Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, so I just uh, – you said it. I'm going to repeat it back to you because I think it would make a good topic for a book or title for a book. Uh, you said butterfly, bee, and bird garden. Mm-hmm. There's something there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a nice alliteration, and there's so you could you could dig in there. That would be a nice piece of fiction. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're just, right. I'll have to think on that. Just a thought. Just a thought. Well, I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you learned from it. Well, gosh, I mean, I could I could see this uh, from a gardening perspective, or I could see it from a writing perspective. And I'll tell you what, and from a writing perspective, there's way more failure in my background <laughs> <laughs> because I would say the the hardest thing about publishing a book is getting someone to read the book mm-hmm. and uh, connect with it. Yeah. So shortly before I got my book contract, I had an agent read it and criticize. She she was interested in it and she read the whole thing, but she was very critical of it. And I had said, well, I was going to revise it. Do you want to see it again? She's like, no, no, I don't think so. And from all the things that she said, it was very clear that she didn't think I had any talent or didn't mm-hmm. think I was very interesting or sorry well at all. <laughs> so I ended up feeling kind of rotten about that. And that was at a point where I just felt like, gee, I don't know what to do to to make this book better. I had had worked on the book for two years. I had hired a book editor. I had given it to fellow writers to look at. I had changed it. I had molded it. You know, I had edited, revised it, everything. And I just thought, I just don't know what to do anymore. I just don't, maybe I should go back to work full time and forget (laughs) this whole writing thing. Just forget it. And a week after that happened, I was offered a book contract. And my editor said, I absolutely love this book. I would be honored to have it in my catalog. And, you know, let's, you know, go from here. Yeah. So I would say what I learned from it was just to hang in there and be tenacious and try to, you know, take what take what you can take the little grains of, of wisdom from 
what your failure and try to turn it into something better, you know, because yeah. you never know what the future holds. Right. So excellent. And what do you consider your biggest success? Well, what do I consider my biggest success? That's really interesting. I guess just publishing my book and being able to share this vision that I'm talking with you about with the world. That's an honor to me. And it's an honor that uh, people would actually read my stories and have my characters live in their heads and have opinions about them and people really get into it. And so that is such a such a blessing and an honor. So I guess I would say my greatest success is publishing this book and being able to share my excitement about plants with readers. Yeah. Well, and I, I love that you're doing this because it, it does. It connects people back to plants and then nature. So good on you for that. Oh, thanks. And what drives you? That's a really good question, especially in the dark of winter. Right. <laughs> I have to really, you know, ask myself that sometimes, you know, <laughs> what, what drives me? Why do I get up in the morning? You know, well, you know, there's, I suppose I would say that there's so many things that drive me, like what we talked about earlier about my, my passion for plants and the natural world. That's a biggie for me. And that didn't come to me until a little bit later when I was an adult. I didn't grow up having a garden and I grew up in Chicago and you know in the city so I I wasn't that in touch with nature when I was young but being able to get out in the garden that definitely drives me to get up in the morning because the the for me a garden is a dream you know it's it's really a it's one it's probably the most relaxing place I can think of you know and so I would just say my love of the natural world and plants is what really drives me. Outside of my family, you know, my husband, my kids, my pets, my friends, all of that stuff is good too. Yeah. Amen to that. And yeah. if, you, if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? Oh, yes. I do have an interesting book to recommend. So there is a science fiction writer named Sue Burke, and she wrote a book called Semiosis. And this is a story that plant lovers would be interested in because this book is about a colony of earthlings that go to another planet where there is life, botanical life, uh, ecosystems that are similar to Earth's. There's oxygen and plants and animals and whatnot, but it's slightly different. And the planet has been evolving for a lot longer than our planet. And one of the outgrowths of that is that there is there are sentient plants. Ooh. So, yeah. So there's a bamboo, a, a huge stand of bamboo that actually can think and communicate with the humans through his markings on his bamboo stalks. And so what she does so brilliantly is she narrates his perspective. Certain chapters are narrated by Stevlin the bamboo. And so you get to sort of hear his thoughts. Um, he takes in the water. He makes his food. You know, she she really is great about kind of portraying the chemical reactions that happen in his vascular system. <laughs> and so she's really kind of mastered that. But more than that, he has, because he has sentience, he has a, an ethical sort of, you know, map to his uh, personality. And he has choices that he has to make. He, he makes little decisions. And through his root system, he communicates with other plants and other trees 
in, you know, the further, you know, the wider ecosystem where he grows. So I would say that's a really fascinating book for people who love plants because it kind of brings a plant's perspective to very realistic life. It's not a fantasy book. It's much more of a scientific-based book. Interesting. It's called Semiosis by... Super. B-U-R-K-E. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Well, I would say your listeners obviously are gardening people, and they don't need me to, to tell them this because I'm sure they're already growing plants. But I guess what I would wish or hope for for any listener is that they grow a plant, even if it's a house plant, you know, just a pothos or a, you know, a snake plant or mm-hmm. something very simple like that. Because I think that when when you you know for me plants are plants are pets, and when you develop a little relationship with that pet, you value it, and so that might transfer to valuing your trees outside or your shrubs outside or whatnot. So I would just encourage everyone to grow a plant. They clean the air in your house. They provide a, a very beautiful verdant beauty. You know, of course, studies show now that when you look at plants, your blood pressure lowers and your heart rate slows down. So it's a very healing thing to have plants around. So I would just encourage people to either grow plants inside their houses or apartments or balconies or in their backyards. Wow, cool. So one of the things I want to say, I've been looking for some books to read. Yes. And uh, you've given me several. So I really appreciate (laughs) that. Thank you so much. Thank you, Greg. It's been fun. Yeah. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? Well, I have a website. It's karenhugg.com. That's K-A-R-E-N-H-U-G-G.com. And on my website, I have all the information about my books. I also have blog posts where I talk about various plants I love or plants I'm planting. So I have a section for gardeners. I have a section for readers. And I have a section for writers. And I have a section, a little section for people who like Paris and French. Nice, nice, yeah. nice, nice. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Well, thank you, Greg. It's been great. Absolutely. You can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash forgetting flower. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community. 
ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.